baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley and it's time to continue our Braves positional preview series as I'm joined by my buddy Corey McCartney here in just a moment and we size up the Atlanta Catchers in part three of this five-part series. As always, you can subscribe to From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Shares, ratings, and reviews always appreciated. Please keep those coming. And my very humble thanks to you for making From the Diamond part of how you enjoy baseball both in Atlanta and and from the Major League perspective as well. Make sure you're following along on social media, on Twitter, at FromTheDiamond underscores, where you can find the show. I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. And you can find Corey at Corey J. McCartney. You can also check out his work over at Talking Chop as well. Meanwhile, on Instagram, at FromTheDiamond is where you can find it. No underscore there. That's the show. And I'm at Grant McCauley on Instagram as well. Every episode of the show, including this Braves Positional Podcast series, is available for you at fromthediamond.com. Next up, we'll take a look at the Atlanta infielders. That'll be coming your way very soon. But for now, it's time to jump into the Atlanta catchers. And to help me do that once again is Corey McCartney. He is the author of Tales from the Atlanta Braves Dugout, which is out now in bookstores. Make sure you get your copy. You can also find the book on Amazon as well. Corey, thanks for making some time for me. Tell everybody all about the book Tales from the Atlanta Braves Dugout, which is now the second edition of this book. Absolutely, Grant. I appreciate you having me do this series with you. Yep, the updated Tales from the Atlanta Braves Dugout. Uh, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. I hope everybody checks it out. Really excited to share uh, some really great stories and, and some updated stuff. Really, again, proud of this Freddie Freeman chapter and can't wait to share it with people. I'll say Last week, I got a text, though, from Freddie Freeman's dad. I sent him yeah. the book, and he told me as soon as he got it, he read it, he loved it. So I don't know what better recommendation I could have than Freddie Freeman's dad likes it. So there you go. Uh, be that as it may, let's jump in. Let's talk about the Atlanta catchers, and let's start with a new kid on the block. He's not necessarily a young kid anymore, but Travis Darno, who was a longtime, I would say, catcher of the future for the New York Mets, that really never came to pass. He did have some highs there. But a lot of injuries kind of derailed Travis Darno when it came to what he was able to do in his time in New York. And he was part of a very big trade between the Blue Jays and the New York Mets as R.A. Dickey went to the Jays. And Alex Anthopoulos was the GM who traded Travis Darno away after having traded for him earlier in a trade involving Roy Halladay. So this guy has been traded for a bunch of Cy Young guys. He's caught for a bunch of Cy Young guys. Really fascinating to see what Travis Darno can bring to the fray this year considering he kind of broke out at the plate last year with the Tampa Bay Rays. He sure did. And I think if you could take the defensive acumen of, of Tyler Flowers and put him with what we saw offensively from Travis Darno last year, mm -hmm. I mean, that's like the optimum catcher. But it's certainly not going to be able to do that. I mean, when you look at, you know, stat cast in terms of their pitch framing numbers, uh, you know, Darno not exceptional uh, in that regard, minus two runs, uh, extra strikes. So 
know, basically how many runs did he save uh, with his uh, with his pulling in additional strikes. So not not a a huge number for him there, but certainly you mentioned what he did offensively. Uh, 16 home runs last year uh, in a Rays uniform. If you look at his arrival in Tampa last year, from June 1st on, only Mitch Garver and JT Romuto had a higher OPS than Darno's 840. So yeah. um, from an offensive standpoint, I mean, this guy uh, should provide uh, quite a bit of punch for the Braves. Yeah, I agree with that. He had a very strange route last year. He had to come back from Tommy John surgery, which cost him a, a big chunk of the 2018 season. And so as you looked at his road back, it also had a significant roadblock because the Mets went out and signed Wilson Ramos. So they kind of found themselves their catcher of the present, which means that Darno's path to getting regular playing time was going to be impeded since Wilson Ramos was going to be in there and his offense kind of does all the talking for him as well. So I can understand the Mets just deciding at this point with the amount of injuries and inconsistency that they had behind the plate going out and finding the answer to their problem, they felt like it was Ramos. So all of a sudden, Darno went from being a Met to briefly being a Dodger to then being a Tampa Bay Ray, where, as you mentioned, he really put together some good numbers. 263 hitter for the Tampa Bay Rays with 16 homers, drove in 67 runs in 92 games. I think Braves fans would be really excited to see somebody who can be a bit of a run producer behind the plate. They had Brian McCann last year, did the Braves, and I don't think that there was anything wrong, of course, with the McCann-Flowers tandem that you had a year ago, but I think certainly, Corey, just based on what we saw from Darno, this has to be an upgrade, doesn't it? I think so. I mean, you go back to the beginning of 2017, the Braves are second in collective catcher war in that span. They trail under the Dodgers. And, you know, certainly the, the Brian McCann Flowers pairing last year uh, had his successes. Uh, this to me, a little bit more like what we saw from having Kurt Suzuki mm-hmm. uh, paired alongside Flowers. I and mean, we saw uh, Suzuki really be able to provide that offensive punch. So I think it's going to be a little bit of an upgrade offensively from last year. Again, he's not the defensive catcher. Flowers is, but as you mentioned from the offset, we've seen Darno work with some really great pitchers and certainly uh, have a, a big influence, especially you think last year with the amount of uh, developing guys that the Rays had there and just the the ins and outs of using those openers. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how he pairs with Flowers in Atlanta. And you brought up the wins above replacement as far as what we could expect out of these guys. I went and looked at fan graphs. They're projecting them to post a 1.5 war apiece. So that would give you about a three war player behind the plate. Since it is a platoon, we'll just call it one player. But it is obviously two guys making various contributions. And of course, Flowers receives a bit of a bump, which we'll talk about in a few minutes for his defensive prowess and pitch framing. And that kind of plays into his wins above replacement more so than it does for Darno, who's more of an offensive first catcher. But the Braves got a 3.2 combined war from their catchers last year. I would say if you're sitting around three, as far as wins above replacement from your catching position, you got to feel pretty good about what you're getting from those two guys, even if they're contributing different things to the collective cause, if you will, behind the plate. And you got to think about it from the dollar standpoint, too. I mean, you're talking a two-year, $60 million deal that Darno got, and then you think about the the, you know, the four million that Flowers is back on this year. That's not a gigantic number when you think about you know what the White Sox went out and got was who was arguably the best catcher on the market right. in uh, Yasmani Grandal. So I think from that end, if they get that kind of production again this season and, and have you know kind of an, an upper tier uh, catching tandem, I think you got to be pretty happy with it. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about defensively speaking before we kind of turn to Darno's offense and maybe transition our way over into Tyler Flowers in a moment because these two are going to be splitting the time. And we'll maybe talk a little bit about their playing time and what we think that split's going to look like. But one of the things that I think is good about Darno is that it's his age 30 season. So he's not necessarily old, but he's not necessarily young. 
the mileage on him from a catching perspective, considering the time that he's missed and, of course, having to work his way back through Tommy John. This is a guy that doesn't, I think, have too many miles on him. He has been a little bit injury-prone at times, but as far as the receiving part of his game, he's going to get to work with Sal Fasano, who, of course, is the Braves bench coach as a longtime major league catcher himself, a guy that's worked to improve the defense of catchers in the organization. I think that could be a real boon for a guy like Travis Darno, who's worked with Fasano before and upon signing with the Braves, seemed to be pretty excited about getting that chance again to maybe take that defense to the next level, whatever that may be. Even if you only make incremental improvements, that's nothing but a good thing as well to have a guy like Fasano around. I agree. And I wondered this last year, you know, we've seen Flowers be, you know, an elite defensive catcher, especially from the pitch framing side of things. Before Fasano got there, I wondered how much of an impact he was even going to have on Flowers. I think Tyler got a little bit better in some areas last year, but certainly the, the relationship already having uh, with Darno and Fasano going to be key. I'm going to say as an aside here on that behind the Braves show, really jarring seeing Sal Fasano without that mustache. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that at all, but that <laughs> no, kind of, I did not. The, as soon as I saw him, man, that, that kind of threw me the, the, the first time I saw him. I wonder, did he lose a bet or something like that? Usually guys don't <laughs> lose the mustache, but I mean, I've seen a lot of people talking about Brian Snitker also, just by the way, just for whatever it's worth, former catcher in his playing days, but he had the mustache for so long. That was a big part of uh, his persona. And all of a sudden, Brian Snitker was not going to grow that mustache back for anything these days as the brave skipper. I don't know if Fasano's maybe following suit or not with that, but that Fu Manchu, that was a major league mustache. That's right, and I have not seen whether or not the, the coaching staff is falling into the Yankee. Oh, but I will say – Eric Young's not. Way, but, yeah, Eric Young's not. He's, he's made up for everything now with that uh, nice salt and pepper beard he's rocking. Yeah, I think it's a full salt beard, and I, Jeff Rancourt was joking <laughs> on the second broadcast of the spring, so it didn't take very long that uh, Eric Young's new nickname is Papa Smurf. So they've already worked there out a go. lot of good stuff there <laughs> to take care of the coaches and their facial hair and whatnot. But uh, as we – wrap up our thoughts on Travis Darno here again offensively I think that's the big thing the Braves are going out looking for someone who's solid enough can work with the staff has experience but offensively can bring a lot to lengthen their lineup one of the things that Alex Anthopoulos said in his media call after signing Darno was an aspect or an attribute that they liked about Darno that was similar to Josh Donaldson is that he's got power to right center field and that's something they feel plays very well in what is now called Truist Park. One thing I do wonder about him is he's only hit uh, above league average twice in his career. Um, he's really only done it, you know, in, in what you would consider more than half a season once, and that was in 2014. The strikeout rate's kind of gone up, uh, you know, these past few years. I mean, 21% last year. So, you know, whether or not that's going to be something to, to keep in mind in terms of the swing rate and how consistently uh, he, he can get on base, but certainly the power's there. I mean, look, the, the full seasons we've seen out of him, 13 home runs, 16-16 this last year. So uh, I think that's going to be a, certainly a, a factor here is how much of that he can provide because, you know, we saw McCann show it in flashes last year, but that's not always been something aside from two years ago when he was on the, an all-star run the first half of the year. That's not always been part of Tyler Flowers' game. So to have consistent power from this spot, I mean, that could be a, a huge asset for this team. Yeah, I definitely think that it could. Let's talk a little bit about Tyler Flowers, the Braves bringing him back for a fourth season they declined his $6 million option for this year, paid him a $2 million buyout, and then signed him to a one-year $4 million deal. So a little bit of creative accounting to put that $2 million on last year's payroll. But $4 million for a backup catcher, a guy that's probably going to – let's go ahead and break down playing time. I would guess that Darneau is going to get between 100 and 110 starts behind the plate. That would be my guess as far as playing time, leaving Tyler with about 50 to 60 or so. And, of course, injuries could change a lot of things. But just if these two guys are healthy, 
Is that about what you would think the split would be as well? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. You, you look at these last few seasons. I mean, you go back to 2017, and Flowers was spectacular that year. I mean, 118 way to run create a plus, and then he slips to 95 in 2018. Last year was at 88. Um, you know, it's just he, we've seen this decline for him. Certainly, the defense has continued to be really strong, but from an offensive standpoint, he's just not been able to recapture what he did a couple of years ago, you know, that's certainly the K rate. I mean, last year was almost 34%. So yeah. I would be surprised if we don't see Darno getting a hundred plus starts in 2020. Yeah, I would as well. Just to kind of back up the stats, Corey gave you a little bit more of the advanced look, but from the regular slash lines and whatnot, first two years with the Braves, Tyler Flowers combined to hit 276 on base, nearly 370 slugging just over 430 with 20 homers and 90 runs knocked in and 182 games. That was by far the best and most consistent offensive run of Tyler Flowers' career. Last couple of years, that line for 2018 and 2019 combined, 228, still a 330 on base percentage, which is respectable. It's 100 points higher than his batting average, so he is drawing some walks, but slugging under 400 and 19 bombs in the course of 167 games played the last two years. So batting average has dropped precipitously, a 50-point drop if you want to break it into the two-year samples to kind of get an idea of where Tyler Flowers has been trending. Last year, went through a lot of, I would say, struggles at the plate, but the struggles behind the plate the first couple of months, I think, were the most alarming and frustrating for Braves fans watching the number of pass balls. Not to mention, I'm pretty sure it was frustrating for Tyler Flowers as well. Led the major leagues in that category, but was able to really shore that up in the second half and really down the stretch. But uh, that's an aspect that I think might have, and Tyler talked about this a little bit, with the mechanics that he had for receiving and not necessarily setting the target and always being in the best position to receive a pitch for whatever reason, despite being what I would say, and we know the numbers back up as an elite framer, it was pretty surprising to see a guy like that struggle so mightily with pass balls for a couple of months. And it's crazy to think when you look at on StatCast, 13 uh, run uh, extra strikes last year, so run saved again on the strikes that he got off of his framing ability, a 52.8% strike rate. If you look to the pitches on the you know the left and right of the plate, 64.5% uh, from to the right of the plate, 674 to the left of the plate, and mm-hmm. he was lined up incorrectly and had troubles with pass balls. I know he's talked to me a little bit in the past about pitch framing, right. and one of the big things for him is trying to position himself where he almost blocks the umpire's view over his shoulder. And, you know, certainly those numbers, when I speak about the left and right of the plate and what he's delivering in terms of those extra strikes, he's getting that done. Uh, but as you mentioned, the pass balls last year were a big problem for him. Uh, I know the comfort level with a lot of the young catchers with, uh, in him, uh, certainly that plays into playing time for him. But that was certainly a concerning factor last year was the pass balls. Yeah, breaking that down, first 49 starts for Tyler Flowers. He had 13 pass balls. Again, 16 pass balls on the year led the major leagues, but just three of those occurred in his final 28 games. So he did make some kind of mechanical adjustment or physical adjustments to how he was receiving the baseball to make sure that the head to the backstop to pick up a loose ball was going to not happen at the rate that it was prior. Looking at baseball prospectus and framing runs, as far as Flowers was concerned last year, he's annually, and this has been going on for five, six years, been in the top five in the majors, if not the top guy in the majors, as far as framing runs are concerned. Uh, was up there fourth in the major leagues last year. That's a pitch FX uh, data that really helps to drive that step. But it just lets you know that there is a quantifiable way to see and to measure what Tyler Flowers does behind the plate to grab those extra strikes. And those extra strikes, Corey, I mean, those things are invaluable. 
you've talked to Tyler a lot about this. What led to his, I guess, growth as a catcher and his drive to become one of the best at this particular art? Because I do think it is an art. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, he he says that you know certainly when anybody talks about the possibility of robo umpires or using technology in any way, shape, or form to call strike zones, I mean, it freaks Tyler out a little bit because he said when he retires, he basically wants to, to be able to go around to different clubs and kind of you know be an instructor and be somebody who can help uh, catchers across the game get a little bit better uh, in this regard. I think it's just something that over time he's just really you know taken on himself to to kind of absorb and, and spend a lot of time going over film with, you know, he talks about his time in the, the White Sox system, how that was, you know, really a big factor for him was when he was working with Chris Sale and that really being something that led to him almost absorbing this in every way that he could. And you think about, I mean, there was a time where he was in this brave system with Brian McCann, uh, you know, to think about how yeah. long that, how full circle everything went with him to get him back in a Braves uniform, but certainly this is something he's just obsessed with. He's talked about writing books about it. Um, you know, certainly the, the entire art of catching is something real to him, designing his own gear, you know, having the face mask that he's responsible for with the springs in it that mm -hmm. they're used in the, the Southern League now. So uh, this is something that I think you know, just the overall approach to catching and kind of taking it to a, a new age without technology taking it completely over uh, this is what Tyler Flowers wants for himself when he's done with baseball. Yeah, I think so. As far as what the Braves are looking at currently, when you look at Darno, you look at Flowers as well. I mean, this is clearly a short-term approach to solving this. And they're, one of the big reasons for that, of course, is that I think that there's a dearth of quality major league catchers that you would think of as, I guess, star-level players or at least star-level for their position. There just aren't that many of those guys out there. So lots of teams are looking for the right tandem or the right platoon to handle this deal behind the plate and the different attributes that one has may be completely different than the guy who's sharing the playing time with him. I mean, we're talking about two right-handed hitters here now as well when you talk about a platoon between Travis Darno and Tyler Flowers. But I think the interesting thing is that the Braves catcher of the future may already be in the system. There's a couple of good candidates for that. But I would say, Corey, that as we kind of look at how long Travis Darno signed for the two-year deal, the fact that Tyler's been back on a one-year deal a couple of times now. The Braves are kind of keeping their options open to see when exactly one of these kids is ready to step up is what it would look like to me. Yeah, I mean, I think we've we've both been around uh, long enough to know they've been waiting and waiting and waiting for somebody to, to position themselves uh, as that catcher of the future. I think they've wanted Alex Jackson to do that. You know, I think to, to in his defense, I mean, he hasn't been – he hasn't been what they wanted him to be defensively. You know, certainly in high school, he was a catcher, got drafted by the Mariners. They try to turn him to an outfielder. John Hart, John Copalello, Quiron turned him back into a catcher. So I think there was a bit of a yo-yo effect there where he had trouble really finding himself. Yeah. I think he did make some progress I agree. Uh, last season. I think he's looked better early this spring. Uh, you know, I think William Contreras has the pedigree, certainly his brother being with the Cubs. But I mean, Shea Langoliers is the one to me where you know, already I think you're you're understanding why for the first time in what since the '60s the Braves have used a, a first round draft pick on a catcher in him uh, coming out of Baylor last yeah. year. Uh, you're seeing the reasons why. I mean, I think we can talk about the pop time a little bit uh, that he's shown uh, in that first game against the Orioles. Uh, but man, he's he looks like he could really be the real deal. I don't know how much they want to have that one catcher. I mean, maybe if they wanted that, they would have gotten really aggressive with J.T. Romito. But I think the Contreras-Langoliers uh, pairing to me for the future really seems like it could be something. Uh, but you mentioned Darno being there another year, so a transition opportunity next year, whether it's Contreras, whether you give Jackson a longer look, you wait for Langoliers to come up. 
Um, there's a lot of options, uh, but it feels like in that pecking order, it, it feels like Alex Jackson's down at the bottom for me right now. Yeah, I mean, it does in terms of what your prospect rankings would be, most certainly. I mean, Jackson has one standout tool, and that is his power, which I think is probably on that scout scale. It, it's got to be at least a 70, if not higher. I mean, this guy has legit major league power. The problem, of course, mm-hmm. is contact rate for him. He struck out almost 40% of the time in AAA Gwinnett last year, only batted 230. However, if you look at 28 home runs and an OPS of nearly 850 and about 300 at-bats, that's some pretty good work in terms of at least making the contact that you do make, having it make a a real impact on the game as far as that's concerned. Uh, Alex Jackson got a cup of coffee last year a couple of times, 0 for 13 in his big league games, didn't really get a lot of opportunity to get comfortable at the big league level, only came up because Brian McCann went on the injured list at one point. But Jackson's 24 years old now. He was a a top pick in the draft by the Mariners. As you mentioned, he kind of took a a, a very circuitous route to ending up back behind the plate. Uh, Talking to some folks around the Braves organization, they feel like he has made some strides. I mean, I don't think that Jackson sticks out like a sore thumb behind the plate by any means, but that's a position that, I mean, it takes time to become a good catcher. I mean, you have to really dedicate to that. It helps that he did it some in high school, but it had to have been difficult to go start your pro career, have it go on for a couple of years, and then all of a sudden you kind of have to, I don't want to say relearn what you already knew, but you have to learn how to do it at the highest level possible, which I'll give him credit for. I mean, he has put in the work, that's for sure. I had a conversation with Brett Cumberland a couple of years ago when he was still in the system. And, you know, you think about all the pitchers that they had at the low levels then, and this was up at Rome, certainly when he had uh, the time up there, Ian Anderson, that you don't call games when you're in high school. And, yeah. and more often than not, you don't call games when you're in college. And you a lot of times you don't even call games at the low levels of the minors. It's not until you get a little bit further along that you have the ability for pitchers who can really command their stuff to work that aspect of it in. So that's an art. And if you haven't done that and you came up as an outfielder and then you're getting pushed around, I just don't think – I mean, again, in his defense, I just don't think Alex Jackson's had time. I don't think he's had the time – and, you know, he certainly the bat is so much further along than the defense. Yeah. He's maybe a little bit further up in the system than you would like him to be from a defensive standpoint at times. Um, but what else are you supposed to do? I mean, the, the power, as you mentioned, I mean, you got to regret that out again at a 70, but there's just so much uh, development still within there. I mean, you sort of wish in a, in a perfect setting that you could have him in an American League team where you can work him in potentially as a DH to find that power. Uh, But that's just not an opportunity the Braves have right now. Yeah, I mean, Jackson is already on the 40-man roster, so you know if they need to call on somebody, he seems to be the first one up as far as that's concerned. But, yeah, I I don't know that he necessarily has a lot to prove at the lower level of the minors, even hitting. I think at this point it's the adjustment that he's going to have to make against the pitchers that he's facing in Gwinnett or in the big leagues. I mean, guys that are going to have a much more advanced approach to how they're pitching and not just a bunch of guys he's going to be able to pick on for a 30-plus home run season, which he's certainly capable of. And we'll see what he's able to do in Gwinnett this year and perhaps what he's able to do this spring to show what kind of work he's been doing and what the next steps for him may be. But as you mentioned, when we start ranking out the Braves catching prospects, William Contreras has been on that list for a while. He's had a five-year career now with the Braves. He's only 22, though. He's an international signing. Uh, reached double-A last year, but I think offensively speaking, he's got as much or more to prove than does Shea Langoliers, in my opinion, and just not looking at the two of them as similar players because I don't think they are. I think Langoliers offers a lot more perhaps defensively in his polish and his approach and his handling of a staff and all of the attributes that made him a top pick for the Braves last year. Contreras seems to be a guy that's an excellent athlete. He's good all around, but 
the defensive side and those components that go with the game calling and the handling of the staff, that may be one of the bigger challenges for Contreras, more so than for a guy like Langoliers who comes with collegiate experience. Yeah, the arms there, right? I mean, yeah. I've seen it uh, mark out at a 60, um, you know, but certainly the the hit tool needs to, to get a little bit more consistent. And, you know, I think he's he's been around long enough to know that he has the relationships with these arms that are these guys that were pop, that are popping up now uh, at the major league level. But it feels like they've just been waiting for him to make that leap. And it just hasn't happened. And I don't think drafting Langoliers last year is an indication of where they feel that Contreras is. Oh, yeah, I agree. I think, it, I, I think it, as you mentioned before, I think it's just more a factor of, okay, we're not in a, a one-catcher uh, existence anymore yeah. for major league clubs. And I think that maybe this it was more indicative of where they feel Alex Jackson is. Uh, but I, I certainly think Contreras and, and Langoliers, again, I think that could be uh, the, the future right there. But I think they're just waiting on, on Contreras to show that he's able to make that leap from an offensive standpoint. Yeah, not a lot of power last year. Hit 263 in 50 games for high A Florida. Just 246, though, only three homers in his 60 games with Mississippi. I kind of think he's going to end up back in Mississippi to start the season again. I pointed this out in my written series, my Braves positional preview series over at FromTheDiamond.com, that the Florida State League is typically a pitcher-friendly league. I saw a lot of it. And, of course, Trustmark Park, which is the home of the Mississippi Braves, is not exactly a hitter-friendly environment either. So he didn't necessarily step forward offensively last year, but it doesn't mean that a return trip to AA might not yield some different results for him as well. Let me ask you this. I, obviously, I'm not trying to step on toes here, jumping, uh, asking you things, but does at what point do you think Langoliers passes him? Do you think that happened? Does it happen this season? Does it happen next season? Because if we're talking about Alex Jackson being in, in Gwinnett, and, you, and we're lining Contreras up in Mississippi. Yeah. At what point does Langoliers push the subject along and we're, and we're wondering who's surpassing who? I think it's really going to come down to actually seeing what these guys produce and what level that they're at. Because Langoliers could conceivably spend a little bit more time in Rome or he could start the year in Florida. And depending on how hot he gets, could get a promotion to that next level. Now, if he starts the year in Florida, the next level clearly is Mississippi. So do you want Langoliers and Contreras sharing time? Or are you hoping that Contreras does enough at Mississippi that he gets himself a quick call up to Gwinnett as well? I think those are some of the options that could be in front of us. I'd be a little bit surprised if Langoliers goes back to Rome to start, but I wouldn't be altogether shocked if he spends maybe a month there and then his next stop is high A Florida and they kind of figure out where they want to go with it. But I think especially for William Contreras, who is a step ahead on the, well, two steps ahead, really, if you look at last year where he ended up versus where Langoliers debuted, which was Rome, he's still a little bit ahead. And I expect that Contreras will remain that way for at least another year. But if he has a bad offensive year and Langoliers has a good offensive year, or if someone gets injured, you never know how this plan is going to go. So to kind of circle back to a point that you made a little while ago, I think it's very important that the Braves have standout catching prospects, multiple catching prospects in their organization because I don't think you can put all your eggs in one basket at that position anymore in today's game. Yeah, I mean, you go back, it wasn't that long ago, I mentioned Brett Cumberland where you're having him wondering if he's going to make that transition up. I mean, you had Lucas Herbert who was Colby Allard's high school teammate. You know, it's certainly, they've all, you know, either not in the system or been surpassed at this point and we've got a first-round draft pick in Langoliers. At least there's the potential for something exciting happening at that position because I think if you want to say one thing over the last 15 years 
the Braves fans have no idea how lucky they were that they had that long of Brian McCann behind yeah, the plate. That's a because big deal. this franchise, you think about Javi Lopez, mm-hmm. you think about Eddie Perez and you know Brian McCann, the long time of just consistency and consistent faces behind the plate. That's not this world anymore. So you you got to have as many young guys in there. It's, just, it's not that much different than, than the way you approach pitching anymore. And you've got to have a lot of different options. And certainly right now, uh, the one thing you can say is they have options. And for those guys you mentioned, Brian McCann, Javi Lopez in particular, it's not often that do you have the consistency of knowing the name of the guy that's going to be catching for you most of the time, but they're also a big-time offensive performer. I mean, that's the – I think everybody's trying to strike gold in that department because – Again, if you look around the league, there's just not a ton of those guys that are around now. You can count them on one hand as far as what I would consider to be elite level or well above average catchers that play every day. And Yasmani Grandal was a name that came up a little bit earlier when you talked about how the Braves went about trying to assess their need and fill their need to sign a catcher, but not necessarily put a roadblock, a multi-year contract style roadblock in front of both Langoliers and Contreras and, and possibly Alex Jackson as well. But I think that that said an awful lot that the Braves went out and signed a two-year deal with Darno, who's you know, right around 30. So again, I don't think he's a high mileage catcher by any means just because of some of the time he's missed, among other things. I think that that does say a lot about they are interested to see what both Contreras and now Langoliers can do in the system. And they spent the number nine pick in the draft on Langoliers, so let's not forget that. I got a chance to see him in Rome for a couple of games last year. He batted 255 coming out of Baylor, 54 games for him, but I loved everything I saw about him behind the plate. Love the arm. Uh, I know you want to talk a little bit about the pop time and some of the other things. I mean, Shea Langoliers, Corey, is, he's got, got all the tools to become a very viable everyday major league catcher if he's able to hit consistently. Absolutely. And a lot was said on the 187 pop time on his third or second base in the eighth inning against the Orioles. And I want to just explain how, how elite that is. Yeah. Last year, JT Romito led the majors in average pop time of 188. And, I, and obviously, I know that this is just one throw, but the Braves' current combination of Travis Darno and Tyler Flowers, they averaged 1.99 and 2.12 respectively yeah. last season. The last five years, the Braves have had one catcher who, with an average pop time below two, a minimum of 20 attempts. That was Anthony Wrecker in 2016 <sighs> at 1.97. What a name. So it's been a long time since they've had anybody with this kind of a cannon. Uh, this kind of athleticism at the catching position. So uh, this is exciting. Well, Anthony Wrecker, who, if you never met or didn't get a chance to see up close, was quite the physical specimen. So we're not talking about anybody that's quite that well put together, nobody that's hanging a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger in their uh, <laughs> locker, whether their teammates do it or not. But, you know, it's a very different style, though, of Shea Langoliers. He's much more compact. I do think he's got the athleticism and all of the extra things that a catcher needs in order to really succeed talking to him I was really impressed talking to him even on draft night about why he chose the catcher position and he said because it's the one that allows him to be locked into the game the most and I thought that was a really heady answer and you know he grew up I think you know loving guys like Yadier Molina uh, Buster Posey some others that you know were everyday impact catchers and it's crazy because I feel older every year that somebody tells me yeah I grew up watching Buster Posey yeah, okay, well, thanks, because, you know, I grew up, you know, not too long after Johnny Bench retired, so I'm trying not to date myself, but Benito Santiago, let's throw that there name you out go. there. Yeah, either way, you know, this was there. a guy that chose that position, and maybe the position chose him as well for the style of player that he is, and he's 22, Contreras is 22, so to make a long story short, very different backgrounds for the two of them, as Contreras signed as an amateur, 
He's been in the organization five years. Langoliers just arrived with collegiate experience. I do think, Corey, to kind of go back to the question you posed a couple minutes ago, this could be a fast-rising situation for Langoliers if he's able to gain traction. And good, because you think about this. Oh, yeah. Christian Bethancourt. How long did we hear Christian Bethancourt is this team's future behind the plate? And how much did investing so much in him set them back? I mean, you think about how many colleges with they go all in on a quarterback and their recruiting class and he doesn't pan out and you've set yourself up for multiple years of trying to pick yourself up in that regard. I mean, Bethancourt did not work out. Certainly he had all the physical tools. You know, the preparation just was not there for him. And it's taken them this long. It's taking them finding a guy who, you know, really didn't find his way offensively in Tyler Flowers until he got here, you know, trying to pair him with guys and just make something work. Uh, to get to this point where you have young guys that you're excited about actually building something for the future. Well, there's a lot to be excited about. I mean, I know Alex Jackson's the guy that's closest to the big leagues. He's already on the 40-man roster, but you've got two really great prospects in William Contreras and Shea Langelier. So it's going to be kind of exciting to see if William will join his brother in the big leagues, of course. His brother's been an all-star with the Chicago Cubs, and that would be a pretty cool story as well. And for Langeliers, this just really seems to be the path that he has chosen. And The Braves obviously thought a lot of him to spend a top 10 pick on him. So exciting guys there. And as far as the major league component of the 2020 club for the Braves, I think it's in pretty good hands with Travis Darno. If he's healthy and plays like he did with the Rays, they're going to get plenty of production behind the plate. And I think Tyler Flowers is capable of handling the other days, don't you? I do, and certainly the, the spring debut of Travis Darno showed you everything you needed to see with that long ball. So yeah, the, the power's power. there, and it's spectacular, and enjoy it. And again, I know Flowers did not have the offensive season he wanted or anyone else did last year, but this guy continues to be a pitcher's favorite just in the ability to steal strikes, and that is just such a key part of Tyler Flowers' game. No doubt. Well, good talking about the Atlanta Braves catchers with you, Corey. Why don't you tell everybody about your book one more time, and then we'll uh, adjourn this, and the next time we catch up, we'll talk about a different position for the Braves, but tell everybody about the book a little bit. Absolutely. Tales from the Atlanta Braves dugout, the updated version will be out March 3rd. Uh, Just a lot of great stories in there. Again, it's Freddie Freeman's dad approved. So find it on Amazon, get it at Barnes and Noble. It will be out on March 3rd. I look forward to seeing what the seal on the front of the book looks like, the sticker seal for Freddie Freeman's dad's (laughs) approval. I appreciate all of your insight on the Atlanta Braves catchers. When next we talk, we will go through the Atlanta Braves infield, which has some pretty darn good players, including Freddie Freeman. So I look forward to doing that with you very soon, Corey. All right, Grant. Thank you so much. My thanks again to Corey McCartney for joining me on this Braves positional podcast series. We have wrapped up the Atlanta catchers and the infield is next for us as we continue with part four of the five-part series coming up very soon. Make sure you're subscribed to From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Appreciate all your shares of the show, the ratings and the reviews as well. Those really help out, so keep them coming in and be connected with us on social media at From the Diamond underscores where you can find the show on Twitter I am on Twitter, of course, at Grant McCauley. Corey is at Corey J. McCartney. Instagram at From the Diamond, and I am at Grant McCauley on Instagram as well. You can find this podcast series as well as the write-ups for my Braves positional preview over at FromTheDiamond.com, so make sure you check that out. And once again, thank you for tuning in to this particular episode of the show as we are now three parts into this five-part series with the Atlanta Catchers now in the books. So the next time we come at you in this series, it'll be a look at the Atlanta Braves infield, of course, led by Freddie Freeman, Ozzie Albies, Dansby Swanson, your shortstop, and we're going to find out who's going to win that third base battle over the coming weeks as well. That'll be a hot topic on our next episode of this Braves positional preview series, focusing on the Atlanta Braves infield and all the news coming from the Diamond. 
Once again, thanks to Corey McCartney for joining me on the show. And once again, thanks to you for making this part of your week. I look forward to talking with you again very, very soon. But until then, I'm Grant McCauley. So long, everyone.